Good morning. I was hoping this morning to see a lot of sunburned faces, which would mean you enjoyed the beautiful weather this weekend. Hope you were able to do that. What a blessing from the Lord that he didn't create us and stick us in a monotoned desert somewhere, but gives us an amazing creation to enjoy, and we should enjoy it knowing that he is the one who gave it to us to enjoy as a reflection of his goodness. So good to see you, sunburn or not. It's good to be together. Well, this morning we're going to finish the book of Malachi. I love finishing things. You should know this about me. It's wonderful to finish. And so as we have come through the past several months, we started in September with the last three books of the Old Testament, and it has been a blessing. So finish Malachi this Sunday by looking at chapter 4. Next Sunday we're into June, which means we are into the Psalms for the summer, and that will also be very Good. So as I was prepping this message now, I noticed something and I wanted to illustrate it for you before we get into the text so you can kind of be aware and be watching for it. And this is the thing that I was noticing, that two people, or people groups in our case, can experience the exact same thing at the same time and have very different results, very different experiences of that event. So we're going to see in the text. Let me just give you a couple of illustrations. We, we live in a day of allergens, don't we? I was just talking to Fred this week about that, how there seems to be so much more allergy problems, food allergies and environmental allergies and this kind of stuff going on. So let's say two people go to a restaurant and they both order the exact same thing and they both eat it. Only one of them can have a very different reaction from the other, right? Let's say it's seafood or something that you have an allergy to. Same experience, same context, same location, same time, very different results. Or consider the sun. This is, this is what's coming in our text today, so I wanted to use the sun as an illustration. The sun is an amazing thing. 93 million miles away from our planet... As you look at the sun, it takes about 500 seconds for light to reach the earth from the sun. So when you see it, you're seeing it as it was eight minutes ago. Isn't that cool? It's perfectly positioned to give everything we need for life on this. Any farther away and we freeze, any closer and we burn. But now two people can stand out in front of that sun and have a very different outcome from that time, right? There's a lot of benefit to the sun. It gives us vitamin D. It helps your body produce vitamin D, which gives you energy and builds strong bones and gives you better sleep and all these kinds of things. It aids in photosynthesis, which helps plants create oxygen, which helps us to breathe, right? But for some people, standing in the rays of the sun can be very devastating to them. It can cause skin cancer, it can weaken your immune system, it can damage your eyes because of the ultraviolet rays. My point is that two different people can experience the exact same thing and have radically different results. And I say that because this is what we are going to see in Malachi 4 this morning. We're continuing the theme of the coming judgment that started in chapter 3 last week, and we're going to see that there are two groups of people who experience this judgment. They have those who love and fear God on one hand, and we have those who do not love or fear God, and we can call these the righteous and the wicked. 
And this is the distinctive categories that the Bible uses to talk about those who fear God, who revere his name, who honor him, and those who do not. So I invite you to open your Bibles, and we're going to jump right into it today. Malachi chapter 4, this is the last chapter in the Old Testament. And so I invite you to follow along and read with me Malachi 4, starting in verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and the evildoers will be stubble. The day is coming, shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you, who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Let's pray as we begin. Father, we do give you thanks for bringing us through another week. We are all coming here this morning from very different circumstances. Some have traveled far, some live close. Some are coming off of an experience that is very encouraging and they're ready to meet with you and to worship. Others have had trial this week, frustration, disappointment, and are coming very needy to you this morning. <clears throat> Lord, we all come with some sort of need. And so I pray that this morning you would meet us here as we've already been able to participate in worshiping together, in hearing your word read, as we look forward to coming to the table in a few moments, God, would you guide us by your spirit? We want to handle your word rightly. I feel a great responsibility to communicate the truth of your word, so would you come and help me to be faithful to the text this morning? I pray for grace in the preaching and grace in the hearing and in everything that happens today, God, our aim is that you would be glorified. We don't want to be marked among those who do not fear you, who do not love you. We want to be among those who fear you and love you. So would you do this work in our hearts as we interact with your word, as we see what is coming? Would you give us strength and hope in the work of Jesus? And it's in his name that I pray, amen. Amen. <clears throat> Excuse me. So if we look back at the end of chapter 3, we saw in verses 17 and 18 what is going to happen at the end of all things. Verse 17 and 18 talk about the coming distinction. We talked about that word last week, a separation, a difference between those who fear God and those who do not fear God. And it is going to happen on what is called the day of the Lord. Now this is common Old Testament and New Testament language for the consummation of everything. When God returns, when Christ returns and sets everything that is wrong to rights. So day of the Lord 
is referring to a specific day in the future where this separation will happen. And again, I want you to notice the forward-looking, the future tense of the verb structure in our passage. The day is coming. Evildoers will be stubble. This is all looking forward to a future day of reckoning, which is called, in verse 5, the great and awesome day of the Lord. So what I want to point out, what I want you to mainly take away is that in these first three verses, you should see a significant contrast between what happens to the people in the first verse, that's one group of people, and what happens to the people in verses 2 to 3. There is a very clear separation, and you can see that right in verse 2 by the opening word, but. But for you. So this is what's laid out in verse 1, but it's going to be different for you. So notice the category distinctions. And now maybe you can see why I started the way I did. What we have in our text is one event, the day of the Lord, and we have two different outcomes, the way that the righteous will experience this and the way that the wicked will experience this. And notice the exact wording in verse 1 when it says, Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. Now, that should sound familiar because that is the exact wording that the people used when they brought this complaint against God in chapter 3. If you look back to verse 15, just pull your eyes across the page of chapter 3. And now we call the arrogant blessed evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. So the people have indicted God for injustice. They've said, you must not care because look how well it's going for everyone else around us. And God, in his gracious response to his people, takes their very words, the very situation that they are talking about, and he comforts them by saying, I'm going to deal with that. The exact complaint that you brought to me, the exact situation that you feel is so wrong is going to be fixed. And that is the grace of God as he promises them to deal with exactly what they have been talking about. When this day is revealed, the holy fire of God's presence will reduce the arrogant and the evildoers to ashes, to stubble. Now stubble is, in this case, not what grows on your face if you don't shave. It is the remnants of a fire. It is what's left over from what is consumed. There is nothing left. So what we should get from this picture, just look at some of the language used in verse 1 of chapter 4. The evildoers will be reduced to stubble. It shall set them ablaze. It will leave them neither root nor branch. What is all of that communicating? It's telling us of the complete and permanent judgment of God. See, there's been other times in the history of God's people where they have cried out to God for help and said, we're being oppressed, we're being wronged, we are experiencing injustice, and God comes and he deals with the situation, but it is somewhat temporary in the sense that he might come and dethrone a king that is oppressing them, or he might defeat an army. But what's happening here, this judgment that's being spoken of in verse 1 is permanent or complete or final, whatever kind of a word helps you understanding that. By seeing that God will leave them neither root nor branch, that should tell us there's no second chance after this. 
This is complete and utter destruction of the wicked. Now you know if you've done gardening or if you have grass that grows up in the cracks of your sidewalk, the only way to permanently deal with that kind of growth is to kill it at the root, right? I mean, you can snap the top off and that'll be back in a week. But if you take it from the root, it's gone, never to return. That's the seriousness, that's the weight of what's being communed here by saying God will reduce them to nothing and take away the root. This is final, permanent judgment. Now, contrast that with what we see in the next two verses. Verses two and three, look at verse two. <clears throat> but for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. So what's the contrast? On one hand, we have being reduced to stubble, destruction, permanently gone. On the other hand, we have healing, peace. That's quite a contrast, isn't it? To happen in just one little verse. The same event, the, the coming judgment of God, the, the burning that will come to the wicked will not be experienced in the same way for those who fear the Lord, for those who fear his name. Now, there's only one other place in the Old Testament where God is directly compared to the sun, and that would be Psalm 84. Now, I bring this up. I know that in verse 1, <clears throat> excuse me, it says that the day is coming and the day is burning and the day is doing this, but that is figurative imagery language telling us that God is the one doing this, right? It isn't the day doing this. There isn't going to be a giant convection oven that comes down to the world and burns everything up. This is God's activity as the sun, as the burning, as the consuming fire. And only one other place is God referred to as the sun. So just listen, this is Psalm 84, 11. And it says this, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly, or we could say from those who fear him. Now the meaning in Psalm 84 is that God, as the sun, brings blessing and protection for his people. For those who walk uprightly. It's the same thing happening in Malachi 4.2. Same connotation. For those who fear the Lord, <clears throat> for those who love him, for those who walk according to his ways, the revelation of his burning self on the day of the Lord will not destroy them, but it will bring them healing on that day. One event, two very different outcomes. We'll come back to this as we get a little bit farther. Now, as we move ahead in the text, I don't know if you thought this when we just read through it or if you read it this week. Verse 4 seems out of place. This happens sometimes when you're reading through and everything seems to be clicking and it's the same context and then, boom, there's something different. Do you see that? So even just if we look at when, like the timestamp here of what's being talked about, verses 1 through 3 are future-oriented, right? We're talking future, but now in verse 4, it seems that this is present. This is present imperative. This is, this is what you should do right now. So why in the middle of a section on the day of the Lord, when judgment is coming, a separation is going to take place, all of a sudden we have verse 4 that just kind of pops in the middle of this. Why? I think what's happening is that verse 4 is answering a question that 
ought to be asked by God's people and probably was. It's just not explicit in the text. But the question would be something like, hmm, if all these things are going to happen, if this is the future, if this is what God has promised to do then, and we don't know when then is, well, what should we do right now? What do we do in the meantime? And isn't that the question that you and I should also ask when we interact with the Word of God? Much of the Word is, is forward-looking. We have glimpses and hints and pictures, and we can get really wrapped up in what is coming in the future. But what does God require of us now? And I think that's the question that verse 4 is answering. God is saying, if this is what's going to happen, I am going to come. I'm going to create a separation. I'm going to judge the wicked and bring healing to the righteousness all in one setting. Here's how I want you to live in the meantime. That is what I think verse 4 is getting at. So look at verse 4. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statues and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Now does that seem a little bit anticlimactic. It's pretty predictable, right? So God says, <laughs> there's this amazing day coming, and it is going to be absolutely irreversibly stunning. Now in the meantime, and they can ask the anticipation, what should we do? Know my law. Follow my rules. Do the things that I have commanded you to do. Remain faithful to me. That's what he says. This is quite an ordinary command, isn't it? In the middle of all this really unique language, know and obey my law. He doesn't tell his people to try to figure everything out about what's going to happen. He doesn't tell them, you better figure out the, the dates and the times and the places and everything. He says, in the meantime, knowing this is going to happen, obey me. Follow my law. Now, it's not that the future is not important. I believe we should study, read, learn everything we can about the coming day of the Lord as the Scripture reveals it to us. However, knowing how our hearts are, how we are attracted to what we cannot know, I caution us. Do what the Word commands us to do. And God says, as you wait for this, know my law. I think it's really significant that in a context like this, future orientation, what's coming, what's going to happen, what God did, the only command he gives to his people here is to know his law and to know his word. And you know what? Nothing has changed. The same attitude and requirement and expectation that God has for his people in 450 B.C. was the same in the time of Christ, was the same in the time of the apostles, and is the same for us right now. Peter deals with this. When he's writing his second epistle, Peter is describing to his readers the same event, the day of the Lord. And he says that it's going to come like a thief in the night. It's going to come quickly. And when this happens, the heavens and the earth are going to be irreversibly changed and remade and renewed. And then he asks the question that could very well pop right into Malachi 4. And here's how he puts it. This is 2 Peter 3.11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God. 
Isn't that the same thing that's going on here? Knowing that all these things are going to happen because God said they would, how should we live our lives? Well, Peter answers his own question a few verses later. Verse 17, he says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. But, here's what you should be doing, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. None of us knows what's going to happen for sure, when it's going to happen, where it's going to happen, all those kinds of things. But what do we know? Grow in grace, in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Or you could say it another way, remember the law of my servant, Moses. Peter doesn't want you to lose your stability. He doesn't want us to be led astray. It's so easy to go down rabbit holes and trails and get distracted from the main thing. He says, don't do that. Don't lose your stability. Spend your time and your effort trying to understand what it means to humbly walk in obedience to Jesus and to the words that he has given us. Faithful obedience to God is what he expects in the meantime as we wait for the great and awesome day of the Lord. Now let's finish. Verses 5 and 6. Back to Malachi 4. Let's read these again. We'll get them in our context. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now, some questions are probably coming to our mind, and that's good. We think about all of the orientation of this text, except for verse 4, being forward-looking, and God says, Elijah is coming. So, who is this? Well, Elijah was a prophet of God who ministered in Israel and Judah about three to 400 years before Malachi's time, served under King Ahab, who was an extremely wicked king. So that puts him... Yeah, three to four hundred years before. So when God says that he will send Elijah again, does he mean that this is the literal historic person, Elijah, who is going to come back and engage in this ministry? A lot of people think so, and there's good reason for that. Given his pedigree, he was a very faithful servant of God. He served faithfully, even in a very difficult horrible, in some ways, situation with Ahab and Jezebel. And there's also the little detail that he didn't physically die, at least in the way he was taken up in the chariot, if you remember reading this, that as he passes the ministry on to Elisha, his protege, the chariot comes and takes him away. So there is a lot of speculation and a lot of reason to believe that Elijah literally himself would come back and would engage in this kind of preparatory ministry. Now, I'm not saying that's wrong, and that can certainly be the case, but I'm slower to accept that as the right interpretation of what's going on in Malachi 4, namely because of what Jesus says in Matthew. So I want you to turn to Matthew 17. We're going to look at two different texts in Matthew, and I'm going to show you how Jesus 
I think, interprets this passage because he refers directly back to it. So Matthew 17, it's just one book to your right in your Bible, flip over. This is the narrative of the Mount of Transfiguration. So Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, and they go up to the mountain. And on the mountain, Elijah and Moses appear, and the glory of God comes down, and God speaks and confirms Christ and his ministry. And as they're coming down the mountain, then after this magnificent event, here's what we read. Matthew 17, starting in verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? So stop right there. Do you, do you understand what they're saying? They knew and had been taught Malachi 4, 5. They had been taught that before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, Elijah comes. Well, <clears throat> they just saw him. So they're thinking, oh boy, this is it. This is what's going to happen. He came. And Jesus says, nope, don't say anything. And they're like, but why? He came. Isn't this inaugurating everything that's going to happen? Let's keep reading. Verse 11, he answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Hmm. Well, Jesus says it even more definitively in chapter 11. So flip back a couple pages, Matthew 11, and follow along as I read, starting in verse 11. Matthew 11, 11. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women there has been risen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. Now here it is, verse 14. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Now why does Jesus say, if you are willing to accept it, John is Elijah? Because he knows Malachi 4, for one thing. He knows that if John was Elijah, then that has certain unavoidable implications for him, for his ministry, right? Coming after this. If he takes that interpretation that John the Baptist, at least, and I think he does, in some way, fulfills this Elijah-like role of preparation, then that has some meaning, some real significance for Jesus' ministry and what he did and what he will do and what he came to do. So I'm going to leave us hang there for a second. We're going to come back to that. But I want to make a couple comments about verse 6, and then we're going to come back to verse 5 and close with one more New Testament connection that I think will help at least a little bit in the whole Elijah, John the Baptist, Jesus, day of the Lord thing that we have going on here. So look at verse 6 again, and we'll come back. And he, this is the Elijah character, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So at a minimum, we can see that the ministry of Elijah is preparatory. Do you see why I can say that? What is he doing? 
He's coming back, and it says he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and children to their fathers. What, what is that communicating? When Elijah comes, his ministry will be to remind the people of their need for dealing with their sin. Now, a, a disrupted family structure is just a picture of how sin has infiltrated all of the areas of the covenant community of Israel. Right? We read about that earlier in chapters 2 and 3. How people were getting divorced, they were marrying unbelievers, the, 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 the domestic structure was all messed up. And as a preparation for the people so that they would not experience the judgment of God, Elijah comes with a message of repentance, deal with your sin, confess it to God, get right, or else he will come back and deal with it in his justice. So at minimum, and there's more to this, but I think we can say that the ministry of Elijah is preparatory to help deal with the sins of the people, and not, of course, he himself, but to point to the God as the one who is able to forgive sin. Now, Elijah did this in his ministry with King Ahab. He called out sin. He called for the repentance of the people of Israel. John the Baptist does this, right? He goes out preaching a message of repentance and baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We read about that in the Gospels. And in a much more significant way, Jesus himself engages in a preparatory way as he comes to earth to prepare the way for his people to have their sins dealt with so that they will not experience the righteous judgment of God. So can you see why someone might be slower to say this is exactly and only what this means? This is prophetic language. There are often multiple layers of interpretation or fulfillment to these kinds of things. So just to tip my hand a little bit, I do see John the Baptist fulfilling many aspects of this promised preparatory ministry of Elijah, not only because of what Jesus says, Matthew 17, Matthew 11, saying explicitly, if you're willing to accept it, John was it, he was the preparation, but also because of what John's father said when he was born. Now here's the last thing we'll end with in, in the New Testament. John's father was a priest named Zechariah, and when John was born, Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesies this beautiful prayer about his son and about his future ministry. And I'm going to read a few verses from Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 76, and I want you to listen for similar language to what we've heard in Malachi 3 and 4. Sunrise, healing, which we would understand as the forgiveness of sin, these kinds of things, right? Listen for that language as I read what John's dad prayed. Luke 1, 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, John just told us about the mercy of God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. John prepares the way for Jesus 
so that Jesus prepares the way for us. To have our sin forgiven. To have hope that on that day, when the final separation happens, we will be counted righteous, not because of our work, but because of what Jesus Christ, the Messiah, had done. I want to leave you with two things, two thoughts from our text. First, as we wait for the coming of the Lord, as we wait for the great and awesome day of the Lord, I want to remind you that our primary task, our primary job is to know and obey the word of God. It can be really easy to be fearful of the future. I fear the future sometimes. I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know when it's going to happen. None of us do. But you don't have to live your life in fear. God does not say, you better, you better pucker up and sit there and just be nervous the whole life. Just, when's it going to happen? What's going to happen? It's going to be terrible. It's going to be bad. I just That's not what God wants for you. What do you do in the meantime? Knowing that all these things are going to take place, what kind of people should we be? The Bible says, know and obey the word of God. Now, what would that include? Well, things like the Great Commission, engaging in missions, evangelism, discipleship, ministry, the Great Commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. It would include the one another's, love one another, be gentle and patient and kind and all of the things that the New Testament instructs us to be, that is included in that blanket statement of knowing and obeying the word of God. And that's our responsibility now in the meantime. Second thing, as we look forward to the future, whether this day comes while we are physically alive or not, there is only one way for you to be marked righteous. There is only one way for you to experience the day of the Lord in a way that brings healing, not destruction. And you know what it is if you've been here for at least two weeks. It is to turn from your sin, repent, and trust in Jesus for forgiveness. He came to prepare the way. Remember in John, he tells his disciples, I go to prepare a place for you. He's not talking about heaven at that point. He says, I'm going to the cross. I'm going to prepare the way so that your sin can be forgiven, so that you can experience the burning holiness of God in a way that does not consume you because Christ has clothed you with his own righteousness. The only way for you to stand in that day is to trust in Jesus. The only way. And I call you to do that this morning. You may have been thinking that you are walking with God for the last 30 years. But you might realize that you've been doing it in your own strength. That is not the way, my friend. Trust in Jesus. He will forgive you. We just sang about it this morning. Come, you sinners. Poor and needy. Weak and wounded by the fall. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love. Ah, oh, what a Savior. 
And I just hope that as we close this book and we think about all the things that are coming, all the things that may happen, all the things that will happen, you remember, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So use it and trust in him. Let's pray. Father, there are many unknown things to us. There is so little that we actually know. And yet because of what your word says and because of your great mercy, we can have confidence that our sins have been dealt with, that Jesus, you became a man of sorrows, so that we might become a people of joy and hope. You traded places with us and took our sin upon you so that we, now having died to sin, might live to righteousness. It's by your stripes that we've been healed. So God, as we consider the future and we look with anticipation to the day when you will indeed set everything right. No injustice will remain on the great and awesome day of the Lord. Give us the strength in the meantime to live lives that are pleasing to you with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love. Would you give us the strength to do that? And God, for those who are here that do not have confidence that they will stand on that day, Convict them by your word and by your spirit of their sin and give them the grace to confess their sin. We're coming to the table now. What a perfect opportunity to be reminded of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. So God, would you come and work in a marvelous way in this room right now to bring not only conviction of sin, but the hope of forgiveness. So would you come and do it? And I pray this in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.